This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Picture this, peers. You're graduating university. You've got your nine to five, healthcare covered, cubicle cemented dream on a platter. You call your mum. Everything is good. Everything is right. Everything is in order except you. When today's guest, Rachel Carpenter, called her mum, she had one question, to take the grad job opportunity with money or to sleep on a friend's couch and earn no money. Her mum said to do the thing that fueled her. Rachel is the co-founder and CEO of Intrinio, a fintech startup that provides businesses with fast, accurate, and affordable financial data. In this inspiring episode, Rachel shares the advice her mum gave her, which shaped her career, losing friends to ambition, and why failure can point us in a better direction if we let it. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. Amazing. So look, when you and I connected, we recently connected on LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing in fintech, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. I'm glad that you reached out. Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, talk to us a little bit about yourself. So I am the co-founder and CEO of a financial technology company called Intrinio. Uh, I started it about coming up, my goodness, on eight years now, um, eight years ago, straight out of college. So never had a real job, uh, studied finance, taught myself how to program, dove into the entrepreneurial pool. Uh, I've been swimming ever since, and I've done nothing else except for grow and build this business um, and build an amazing team around me. So um, what we do is, in a sense, kind of like glorified plumbing for the financial services industry. <laughs> we sell data uh, as simply as that, data that investors and other fintech entrepreneurs need uh, in order to invest or to build tools 
for the investment system. Uh, a good example of this is a platform like Yahoo Finance, right? There's a lot of data that's being displayed on Yahoo Finance, stock prices and financial statements and things like that. That's the kind of data that we specialize in sourcing and cleaning and distributing. So we actually sell the data to the engineers that are building tools like that. We're one step behind the scenes. Uh, but what that means is that the more different types of data we're able to uh, source and clean and deliver um, the more types of innovations we can power. And we get to see our data come alive inside of some of the most exciting advancements um, for the financial and banking industry. So cool. Oh my goodness, Rachel. It's, it's you know, I had a bit of a look into your company and what you do, but it, when you're repeating it back to me, it makes a lot more sense. And, you know, yeah, it's just something that you wouldn't actually think about unless you were in the industry. Exactly. So I'd love to, you know, I'm excited to dive a bit deeper into that with you a bit later. But mm-hmm. I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Great question. I am a cheesehead. So I grew up in good old Wisconsin, um, in the tundra, lots of cows, lots of cheese, um, and there is a very special place in my heart for the Midwest. I actually live in Florida now, uh, travel quite a bit for work, and I have my team is very spread out between Colorado and Florida and a number of places. But there is a special place in my heart for the Midwest. And I think a lot of what I experienced in my childhood and in the Midwest culture 100% shaped who I am as a leader and a manager. There is something about Midwestern people. If you meet them, they're really nice, <laughs> extremely nice, extremely humble. And that is, in my opinion, one of the most important things in great leadership is humility. Um, I like and I like to and try to practice what I think of as servant leadership. I'm here to help my team, right? I surround myself with smart people and I'm here to help them and serve them. Um, and you have to be humble to do that. You make a lot of mistakes as a leader. You need to be good at taking feedback about changing direction, putting things down when they're not working. And it takes a lot of humility to do that. So um, I think growing up in that culture and in the environment in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin made me a nicer person. And it made me, it brought a lot of humility into my personality and, and how I lead. So uh, very cold, wouldn't want to live there again, but so happy that I grew up in that environment. <laughs> It's so funny, you know, we we have a lot of US entrepreneurs on the show and, you know, it's so interesting how every every different state and whatnot really brings a different energy, a different culture. You know, for you growing up, you know, what were the early days of, talk to us a little bit about your early days, you know, as a teenager trying to navigate that time and then through to college, you know, I think you stayed in Wisconsin. I think you went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison at School of mm-hmm. Business. You did finance, as you mentioned. You know, talk to us a little bit about Rachel, the early years. Rachel did everything in the early years. It was a, it was a yes from me for all the activities and everything. Um, I was an athlete in college or in, well, in college and in high school, but, um, in high school, I was an athlete. I was captain of the debate team. I was taking extracurriculars, extra courses, AP courses. I was in very involved in theater, uh, and music and sang and played the bassoon and played soccer and was in Spanish club and did everything. So very just high energy. I did a lot of stuff in, in high school. Um, in college, believe it or not, I actually entered the university with a major in musical theater singing, dancing, acting, which has served me well as a CEO, because a lot of it is pitching, presenting, telling your story. Um, 
And I still miss that part of myself quite a bit. I've actually just recently taken the piano back up to try to reconnect with that side of my brain. Um, the other half of my brain has always been very analytical and absolutely obsessed and in love with math. Uh, I took extra calculus courses in college like a crazy person because I liked it so much. Um, and I'll never forget sitting in, uh, just for fun, I took a finance 100 course, um, kind of an intro to finance. And I remember seeing the present value of money formula that teaches you how interest works. And it was like something clicked in my head. And I was like, this is how you take money and make more money. This is how this works. I love this. Um, and so at that point in time, I simultaneously kind of was like, I'm never going to make any money if I am in musical theater for the rest of my life, as passionate as I am about it. Let me choose something that I'm also passionate about that also might make me a little bit of money. Both of those things were important to me. Um, and so I actually switched my major to the business school um, and ended up getting a double major in finance and entrepreneurship. So um, it was a big shift for me. It kind of illustrates how split down the brain sides I am. Um, and then with very little technical experience, actually met my co-founder in college and turned on all the job offers I had and slept on his couch for a year and taught myself how to program as if I needed another thing to focus on. <laughs> so very diverse, uh, diverse background of, of different things I focused on and, and jumped around a little bit. But uh, the concentration later in my, in my age centered around finance and technology. And that's how I ended up in FinTech. It's so fascinating. You know, I think we head into college with an idea of what we want to do and we think we know who we are and we think we're all grown up after graduating high school. And, you know, most of the time, you know, a lot of change does happen during that time. And I find it fascinating that you just literally went from polar opposites, like one side of the spectrum to the other. <laughs> you know, for our peers out there listening who maybe they're just graduating or maybe they're heading into college or maybe they're even just looking for a change in job and they're not sure if what they're doing right now or the career they're in right now is right for them. How can we get clear on what it is that we want and go after it? That's a very good question. I think the first thing to remember is that there isn't a timeline in anybody's life. I don't know the exact stats, but there are a surprising number of entrepreneurs in their 50s and their 60s that are starting their first business or branching out or changing their careers. Um, you know, people always talk about how Oprah was actually quite late in her in age when she finally made it, right? So there is no timeline you're supposed to be on. Don't be afraid to try things. It isn't as black and white, all or nothing as people make it out to be. Um, so you don't have to find the number one exact thing that is your life mission right away, right? You're allowed to have multiple. You're allowed to change them. That's the, the most important thing I think to remember. Um, but there was a very defining moment for me that helped me realize um, which direction I wanted to take. Um, and it was actually my mom that that got me there. So I picked up the phone and called her right when I was about to graduate. And I said, Mom, I've got job offers from some great opening entry-level finance positions. I could go sit in a cubicle and have a salary and start building my 401k and have health insurance coverage and do the thing that everybody does. Or I could go to Chicago, sleep on a couch, and make no money. And major kudos to my mom, right? Because I would argue that 95% of moms would not say what she's about to say. She said, what sets you on fire? What makes you more excited? I don't care about the money. I don't care about the health insurance. I don't, what is, what are you more excited about right now? And I was like, not the cubicle. <laughs> don't, 
don't send me there. And I hung up the phone and I turned down all the job offers I had and I just went after it and I haven't stopped since. So in a sense, I'm very lucky. Not everybody has family members that are that risk averse or that supportive of, of taking the leap. Um, but even if you don't have a family member to ask you that question, just ask it to yourself. What sets you on fire? What is more exciting to you? That's nine times out of 10, the best path to go down. Oh, I love it. And I love your mom. She would fit perfectly on this show. And she I would. think, yeah, it's, I just, it's just so valuable to ask yourself those questions. What other questions should we be asking ourselves when we're kind of in the gray and trying to figure it all out? Mm. So with entrepreneurship specifically, that's what I can probably best speak to. If you're trying to figure out your entrepreneurial journey and jump in to starting a business, um, do you have it? Do you have it in you? Do you have the grit? Right. I mean, because it isn't for everyone. That's the first thing to remember, right? Like it isn't for everyone. It's really hard. It is uncomfortable. It takes three times as long as you think it's going to take. And so coming to terms with, am I ready for that? Because not everybody's personality is the same, right? I mean, one of my favorite books is Zero to One by Peter Thiel, where he explains that there are people who are really good at getting things from zero to one, starting from nothing and building something. And then there's a different type of personality, somebody that's really good at getting something from one to N out into the future. Managers, the type of person that could run a three, 400 person company or work within a traditional business. Um, we need both of those people in the world for obvious reasons, right? But you've got to have the personality and the comfortability with failure and risk to to start from scratch and to build your own business. And so I think asking yourself, are you prepared for how hard it's going to be? You can't really prepare for it, but are you willing to, to deal with it and to figure it out? Um, and do you have that mentality of zero to one? It's, it's a really good read. Um, I highly recommend that book. So valuable. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story. So, you know, your mom says, do you want to, you know, I, what sets your soul on fire? And you kind of mm-hmm. thought, well, I think it's just actually learning to code and, and being on my friend's couch. Talk to us a little bit about that time there. Did you have any doubts going into it? You know, usually at that time, we look around at all of our friends and everyone's getting their high-powered jobs and everyone's finally has money <laughs> after college, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about how you navigated that time. I had such narrow tunnel vision into what I was doing. I actually lost some friends during that time period because a lot of them who were going down that traditional path, they were horrified by what I was doing, right? <laughs> to them, it was, it was terrifying. And they, they cared about me in their sense. And they said, what is your plan B? You're sleeping in a couch. You don't have a real job. <laughs> You're pretty much homeless right now. We're worried about you, Rachel, right? Um, what's your plan B? And that was so offensive to me because I was just so in the zone of getting things off the ground and getting a website built and building our technology. There was never a plan B. I, there was no other option for me. And so I kind of had to brush that off. A lot of them didn't understand the hours I was working, the crazy environment I was living in. And I did lose some some friends that just couldn't understand the lifestyle at that point in time um, because it really was all hands on deck. So it was tough. Um, I slept on the couch. I would just sit up, drink coffee, remain on the couch and keep coding and then go lay back down on the couch again over and over and over again. Um, and so it was tough. You know, we, I was living off of the salary of my co-founder, my friend, uh, his name is Joey. Um, he would work all day. 
quick shout out kudos to him. He actually had automated his entire job at work. He was working at a uh, accounting firm and he built a bunch of automation into a spreadsheet and he was able to then just message me and work on our business during the day. So he had a real kudos to him. He had a real job. Um, and he would, I would just sit in the apartment and code and he would secretly code from work and we would get things going. Um, it was uncomfortable, uh, but worth it. And you, when you're that focused, you you just can handle it. How can we get better at being okay with feeling uncomfortable? Well, first we've got to be comfortable with failure because I think part of the fear of being uncomfortable is like, what's the point? What am I, what am I going through this for? Right? Like why, why even deal with this in the first place? And part of that is just the fear of failure. If you don't want to be uncomfortable, it's because you're worried about what happens on the other end of that discomfort. Um, you might fail. That entire year was actually a failure for us. We built the wrong thing. <laughs> we were building, we were trying to build our own website for financial analysis, and then we couldn't afford the data to power it. So we, the entire year was a waste, completely waste of time, right? So you have to understand that you might head down the wrong path and it might be uncomfortable while you're going there, but getting comfortable with failure will help you be less worried about just the discomfort of it all. So that's the first thing. Recognize you might fail. Deal with the being uncomfortable anyway. Um, and just have your eyes on the prize. Have your eyes on, on what the outcome is going to be and, and remember that it'll be worth it. Mm. At what point for you did you kind of get clear on that vision and on that outcome? You know, I think from my understanding, you had the idea while you were still in college, you know, and then you were obviously coding that first year out and it was all wrong. You know, how did you get clear on that? And how can we get clearer on the things that we want to pursue? And I guess uh, on on our, I wouldn't say our passion, but kind of on the thing that we, that actually drives us. Right. So... What's, what was interesting for us is that we wasted a year of our lives, right? Which can create a lot of anger, which can be a really good source of fuel for you and passion. <laughs> uh, it can make you work a lot harder and a lot faster, right? So we built this whole website. I learned how to code. We got this entire financial analysis app up and going. And the analogy I frequently use is that it was like we built this custom car and we were just watching it sit in the driveway because we couldn't put gas inside of it. Like everything in finance runs off of data. It's, it's the raw materials you need to make whatever you're doing come alive, whether it's an investment or a website, you need data, you need stock prices, you need all of that information. And so we couldn't get it. The, the average cost for financial data before Intranio came around was between 60 and $80,000 a month just to start for us to get the data we needed. Right. So that's infuriating when you've spent a year of your life being so focused so hardworking to get something you really believed in off the ground. And then it's just dead, just completely dead. So that was depressing for a few days and it quickly turned into fuel for us. And we started researching, maybe we've been going about this wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be in the car industry. Maybe we should be in the gas industry. Let's not try to make the financial apps. Let's try to get the data to power everyone else's apps and tools that they want to build. And so that's the funny thing about failure and running into a brick wall like that is that it can sometimes point you in a different direction that can be far more valuable. And that's exactly what happened to us. Yes, it was depressing. It was a complete failure. You could look at it as a waste of time, or you could look at it as really helping set us on the path that was going to take us somewhere really exciting. So I think that's that's something to remember is 
you know, in, in to your point to finding that clarity is that sometimes your darkest moment, it's just, it's right behind, it's right behind the wall. It's right there. You just have to keep working through it to figure out which direction to go in. Mm. I just I love this type of conversation, Rachel. I think, you know, so, so many of us see what's out there on social media and all the gloss of business and how great entrepreneurship is and Mark Zuckerberg and whatnot. And, you know, I just think as this is why we love this, these kind of conversations. It's just so much more grounded and real. And, yeah. you know, the first time you do do it, it is probably going to flop. Like if it doesn't, <laughs> it's almost like you're doing something wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same, on the same side of the coin, it's, how do you get up after a failure like that? You know, what, you said you lost friends over this. You were literally living on your mate's couch or your co-founder's couch. Like that's a, a, a pretty intense situation to be in. How can we overcome those obstacles and those failures and actually get back up and, and keep going? You have to be working from some source of purpose. For me, a lot of that was having a horrible boss when I was in college. I did have one normal real person job once in my life. And it was working in this horrible, I was like a student assistant in the HR department of some big software firm. It was horrible. I was so underutilized, micromanaged. I had a terrible experience with my boss. And it made me realize I'm never, ever going to work for somebody else again. I cannot do it. I I immediately went and changed my major to entrepreneurship. And I said, this is it for me. I never want to live this life again. And I want to, I want to be different. I want to be a different kind of boss. I've seen how bad this can be. And I want to be different for my employees one day. And so I've never forgot that. Like she is in my head all the time. And I work from that purpose of we're going to make it work no matter what. I don't care how many roadblocks we come into. I'm passionate about my team. I'm passionate about our product. I'm passionate about being an entrepreneur and having the choice to be a good leader and a good boss. Um, you don't have that choice if you if you work for somebody else and you go somewhere else. So for me, that's a it's not all of it, but that's a huge part of my purpose. Um, and so when it gets dark and when it gets hard and you have to stumble through those things, having that is sometimes the only thing you've got going for you to keep keep you pushing forward. So figuring out what that is for you is is really important. I love that. So talk to us about how you got off the couch. I, I just find this absolutely fascinating. <laughs> oh no, there's a whole nother year of couch coming up oh, after this. Don't worry. Yes, even better, <laughs> even better. <laughs> we switched though. Joey went on the couch the second year. Oh, yeah, perfect. had to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, um, of course. So-, so- so this was like, this is the turning point, right? Like we're, we're in Chicago. We've hit this roadblock. We're like data is where we want to be. Let's move into a, be a data business. Um, the more we researched, we went, Oh goodness. There is a lot of technology we're going to have to build. <laughs> we're basically reinventing the entire supply chain for the financial data industry. Like it, it took years for us to build all of our tech. Um, and we didn't have any money. So when you have a lot of technology to build and you need to move fast and you don't have any money, you don't want to do it from Chicago. Uh, it's very expensive to live there. So this is an interesting tidbit. My mom actually owned, owned a wine bar in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I went, well, I'm sure as hell going to need a lot of wine over the next two years. So, um, and we were sick of the snow. It, the cost of living was far too high for the work we needed to do to get the tech built before it was actually generating revenues for us. So we just packed up and moved to Florida. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to stay there. Um, 
we ended up falling in love with the area and with this whole rise of the rest movement um, in the venture capital and entrepreneurship world, started to realize it was actually a competitive advantage to be in an area like that. Our costs were so much lower. Our money went a lot farther. Our runway extended. Um, and it was easy to attract talent to the beautiful beaches of Florida. Um, and so we actually ended up staying there. And it was there that couch year two happened. Um, and that's when we had already pivoted. We decided we're going to be in the data space. Um, and we started building technology. And it was also a different kind of a dark time. Uh, the first couple of years were pretty dark because we were, in short, training a machine learning model to digest and clean data. But you have to feed a lot of manual. You have to manually feed a lot of data into it. To put it in perspective, just uh, to go down a sliver here... Um, we pretty much manually fed every financial statement for every single publicly traded U.S. company into this system, which is not fun. Not a fun activity, but it paid off. It formed the basis for all of our technology today. So I'm uh, programming and, and doing this all day long. I'm serving wine at the wine bar all night, then I'm drinking the wine, and then I'm doing it all over again. And did that for a year until we got our, our technology, our core tech built, and kind of like our, our first version of the website launch, which was about 2016, um, and started to search for some of our early investors. So that's kind of like the phase two, coming a little bit out of the darkness, finally realizing the real direction we needed to head in, but it was still painful. <laughs> First two years, first two, three years, four years even. Mm -hmm. So painful. You know, I think yeah. it's, it's just such a misconception that so many of us have. And I think it's almost like, you know, they often say that naivety going into it, you know, it's almost good because then, because then you actually go out and do it as opposed to just sitting on the couch and just going, mm -hmm. no, thank you. You know, how can we get better at diving into the things that matter to us? That's a great question. I think one of the most important things I always tell other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs is that distractions are deadly and you have to get really comfortable saying no, which is so hard to do, especially again, if you're from the Midwest of the United States and you've, you're a nice, it's just in you. Uh, it's hard to say no to people. You don't want to disappoint other people. You want other people to feel good and saying no can be hard. Some personality types don't have a problem with it. It was something I had to really, really work at, um, to be super guarded with my time. There are certain things as a founder and a CEO that n nobody can do except for you. And it's a lot of the passion driven stuff, right? Like, writing the first lines of code, establishing the vision, thinking about strategy. Um, those are all passion founder driven things that nobody can do except for you. And so they need to be prioritized in, in your time and in your schedule, but people can just want so much from you all of the time. And so sometimes it's saying no to social things. Sometimes it's saying no to family, to relationships, to, to things that are really tough. And then sometimes it's business related no's that you have to give, but you have to give the no's uh, because anything that distracts you from that core passion and, and moving the ship forward can be absolutely deadly, especially in tech because speed is everything. So that stuff will slow you down and distract you and be absolutely deadly. So I think learning to say no, being careful of distractions helps you stay focused on what, what really matters. What was your greatest distraction doing during those early years trying to get it trying to get it off the ground? Did you have a distraction that you know? Yeah, all of these like entrepreneurial support organizations and conferences and CEO circles and groups and startup stuff, right? Like 
why, why go to a startup conference? You should be at the conference in your industry. You should be working on sales, not just hobnobbing with other startup people. It's so general, right? But, and I think this is everywhere, but there's all kinds of conferences, meetups, groups, networking. And I hesitate to say networking because there's an aspect of that in the beginning that is really valuable. Um, but a lot of that stuff is just so distracting. Um, and these groups will pull you in and try to put you on their website or put you on your page and tout you as one of their, their, somebody in their network or in their community. And it's like, I think people can get, people can get really regionally sucked in to those regional groups, um, and not realize that the world is their oyster. Um, and it can also just be a huge distraction. I mean, we were, we were literally part of some incubator place that had like yoga on Monday mornings in a snack closet. And I'm like, what are we doing? Right? Like we, this is put me in a corner somewhere with no windows and let's go sell. Like that is what we should be doing. Right. And so it was like, there's just, I just get bombarded. It's, it's sexy. It's exciting when a new startup launches. Right. And everyone wants to talk about you and and bring you into their circle. Um, but you've got to be focused. So for me, it was like, I played that game for a little while. I thought it would be great to be part of the community and whatever. But after a year or two, I was like, I just need to sell my product and grow my business. <laughs> and if I've got extra time to hang out with people, that's great. But that, that kind of really know how to call it. Like just kind of like the entrepreneurial support startup communities, I think can be a huge time suck. That's probably a very controversial opinion, but I find them to be very distracting. Mm. Been there. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Amazing. So talk to us a little bit about then the progression of the business. So you know, those first two years you were from, you were on the couches and it was all happening and you were coding away. Mm -hmm. You got to a point, I'm guessing end of year two, where you were probably looking for investment money, that kind of stuff. Talk to us a little bit about that process. How did you navigate that? And I guess what was the biggest learning about yourself during that next phase? Mm. This was a nightmare. So (laughs) I'm speaking obviously specifically for the United States here. The Southern parts of the United States are an absolute nightmare. They're, they're starting to get better, but there's obviously a lot of old retired people in the South parts of the United States that, and there's a ton of money, right? Like Florida, there's a ton of money down there, but it's all invested in restaurants and real estate and these different types of asset classes that are very low. Well, arguably low risk relative to a technology company. So I beat my head against the wall thinking that I had to raise money in Florida, talking to people who did not understand technology, probably didn't understand finance, and sure as hell had no idea where we were sitting at the middle intersection there, right? Like a good example here is like, one of the most well-known things in our industry is a Bloomberg terminal. If anybody's familiar with that, that's not, we're an, we're an API based data company <laughs> and we're not trying to displace or get rid of the Bloomberg terminal. But the amount of times I heard, Oh, what you think you're going to get rid of the Bloomberg terminal? I'm like, it's, it's 2017, 2018 at the time, right? Like it was just so frustrating. They did to be so misunderstood by such a, a the wrong class of investors really to be talking to. Um, then I ventured a little bit outside of Florida trying to find angel investors. Um, and at the time, being in Florida was a bad thing. Why aren't you in New York? You're a fintech company. And that has totally changed. Now my investors are like, stay there. Do not move to New York. It's too expensive. We want to come down and visit, right? But back in the, like, you know, 2015 to 2018, it was a bad thing until, until people changed their perspective. And so I branched out of Florida and met another brick wall, which was people just didn't understand why we were in Florida. Um, and then out of nowhere, and this was kind of a turning point, we got a couple, 
a couple gems, a couple gems in the rough down in Florida, you know, former Wall Street executives from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley who'd retired down in the area were up to speed with technology, had just moved to Florida and got really excited, joined our advisory board, made angel investments. And so we did find a few diamonds in the rough that kept us going in those early days. Um, but I heard 200 no's from investors that just had no clue. Um, and eventually we actually got reached out to by an angel investor in Singapore uh, who ran his own fintech platform and needed data for it. Ended up personally investing, introducing me to his whole network of angels in Singapore. I actually flew out to Singapore, spoke at a conference, met him, sealed the deal, got the investment, and then my whole world opened up, right? It was like, what was I doing in Florida? Wrong kinds of investors, wrong attitude, wrong risk profile. The, Singapore is my oyster, right? We Now we have investors from New York, from California, from Singapore, Um and, and it really changed everything. And so I think the biggest lesson for me out of, and it was a couple years, probably two years worth of trying to raise those early rounds, the angel and the seed rounds. Um, and the biggest lesson for me was that the interview goes both ways, right? I have to like who's giving me money because we're marrying each other. And if they don't understand what we're doing, if they don't buy into the passion, if they're the wrong profile, I shouldn't want their money anyway. And so that, that was a big lesson for me was changing the way I approach fundraising because it's a two way street and you have to really love your investors too. Oh, just so valuable, Rachel. I think, you know, even something else that stands out from that for me is that kind of looking beyond where you're at now, you know, for you, it was just like, well, well, naturally I'm in Florida, so I'm just going to raise here or for Mm -hmm. anyone else in Oz, it's like, naturally I'm in Melbourne. So why not, you know, but there's so much more out there. And I think Mm -hmm. it's, it comes back to the idea of like, you know, even though we don't like to use the word network, you know, mm-hmm. expanding your view or your vision, even your, your viewpoint, um, and then kind of building your network outside of it. So fascinating. Oh my goodness. I love it. So I'm very, I'm a little bit conscious of, of the time, but I, I'm absolutely loving this. I can honestly go, we could go for hours, Rachel, <laughs> but I've got a couple of final questions for you. So the first one is, once you then gain that momentum, you gain that investment and, you know, you were kind of like, wear off. How did you stay true to your vision and true to what you were building with all of these outside voices or, mm. you know, outside investment coming in? We didn't always. We made mistakes, right? I mean, we would build a feature that, you know, or, or get outside of our target market. And in the beginning, you kind of have to learn those things. And it gets back to the distractions I mentioned earlier, right? Like sell one thing to one very specific type of person and do nothing but sell that thing to that person for a long time. Um, but we, you know, we, we had part of what was tough for our, for our business is that a lot of people need data and finance, right? Like, Universities need data when they're teaching finance. Investment firms need data. Personal traders need data. Hedge funds need, right? But, and so in the beginning, we actually sold both B2B and B2C. We were like, we'll sell to anybody. Anyone can buy data from it. Doesn't work, right? Most fintech companies eventually move from B2C back to B2B. Um, and that's exactly what, exactly what we did over time. Um, so we did struggle a little bit in the beginning because when somebody says they want to buy your product, that's exciting in the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, give me your money. We'll take it. And so in the beginning, but in a weird way, it was a good thing for us. Like we, we got a lot of early traction and feedback from those users. They were a little bit lower risk, kind of month to month individuals that were giving us feedback on the product. We were improving quality and getting our brand out there. So it did help us in the beginning, but it was a, it was, it was a learning 
experience for us to really shift and focus and say, no, we want, we want to sell to engineers and developers at real businesses. Um, and so that, that was a big shift for us. Um, but it can be distracting, right? You, you're probably going to raise venture capital or have some type of investor that's going to tell you what to do. Um, you might have an advisory board, friends, your family, your boyfriend, some, you know, spend more time with me, whatever it is. And people are going to always be trying to pull and, and push you in a different direction. Trusting yourself is really important, right? I mean, and especially as a woman, we've got that imposter syndrome thing that happens quite often, right? I mean, I literally hired a CEO once because I thought I couldn't be the CEO. Biggest mistake of my life. It was a total four month waste of time before I really had the courage to say, actually, this should be me. I'm the one raising the money. I know I, I started this. Like this should be me. Um, and so having that imposter syndrome, once you get rid of that and, and you really get into your stride as the CEO and the founder, um, it's easy to say, sorry, but this is our vision. This is the direction that we're heading in. And the more you do it, the more it sinks in, the more confident you get in it. Um, just takes a little bit of time. That absolutely fascinates me that you hired a CEO. Like from from the outside in, and, and maybe this is because you're now in year eight and you're Forbes <laughs> under 30 and it's all glorious. Yeah. But, you know, you seem so just quietly confident and just mm-hmm. like almost just have this ease and naturalness to you about leadership and, and all of that good stuff, mm-hmm. which we love. But, you know, how I actually can't believe it. How, how did that even go down there? And, and how did you, I guess, build that inner confidence? I faked it for so long. Ah. <laughs> You're terrified, right? You're nervous. I mean, yeah. I, I have given the Entrinio pitch probably t- like 10,000 times. And the first 5,000 were horrible. And I was shaking and I was nervous and I didn't know exactly what I was saying. And now it's like I could do it in my sleep, blindfolded after two <laughs> bottles of wine and deliver it completely perfectly, right? But it just took me a while to get there. Um, I think time is a huge factor you've got to do it even when it hurts, right? Like even when you're scared, just repetition, right? Just getting out there, pitching, telling your vision, talking about it, making executive decisions, taking the risks, all of the things. You've got to do it all, even in the beginning when it hurts, because it'll stop hurting so much. Eventually, it'll feel second nature. Um, so that that's the time piece to just force yourself to do it and get through it. Um, and also having a, a support system. You've got to have a great team, right? My executive team, some of the time tells me what to do, right? Like they, and they believe in me and we encourage each other. So a, a solid portion of it is time. Another solid portion of it is you just forcing yourself to be repetitive and, and just do it even when it sucks. And then the last little piece is just having a great team around you that can reinforce the fact that you're right where you need to be. Mm, I love it. What has been one of your greatest failures in the years of, I would put this in quotations, of success of the business. You know, when you brought on board the team, when things were going well, you know, what has been your greatest failure? That's a great question. There's so many. It's actually a core value at Intrinio is failure. We've got a whole board where we keep track of every time somebody screws up and what they learned from it to try to normalize it a little bit. Um, and we always say, like, if you're not screwing something up, then you're not moving fast enough. Um so you better make it up onto that board. It's a rite of passage. Um, and so there's so many failures. Uh, I do think hiring that CEO, it could be viewed as a failure. We did the same thing with a head of sales. We hired some big Wall Street exec who's used to selling really traditional finance products, not realizing that what we're doing is disruptive and different. And this guy's not going to understand it. So I made those two like middle-aged white male corporate hires thinking they had the answers for me. And I was wrong. That was a failure. It, it 
didn't waste all of our time, but it was a setback for a few months when we were just uselessly trying to get them up to speed. Um, and so that was a big learning experience for me. Um, and then actually recently, I allowed myself to get a little distracted. Uh, we had interest from a very large financial services firm in white labeling our entire platform. And we were like, cool, we'll do that. Even though it was like, okay, well, are they actually going to buy it? Like, does this make any sense? It's completely outside of your business model or any other customers validating this. It just was like, we got wrapped up in how exciting it was that this one big company was interested. And, and we spent a couple months of development time with a few engineers building it still exists. It's not a total waste of time, but it didn't, it was, it was just outside of our strategic vision. Right. And so it, you can easily just stray from those things once in a while. But the most important thing, most important thing about failing like that is what did you learn from it? Right. It's like, well, let's put some guardrails around ourselves to make sure that whatever we're deciding to build and whatever features we're doing are actually in line with our vision, mission, core product set, business model, target customer. And if it doesn't align up into that, it's probably a distraction. Let's not go there. So pretty big failure, wasted some development resources for a few months, um, but learn from it. And that's the most important thing. I love your mentality around just learning from the failures and mm-hmm. not taking them too seriously. Absolutely love it. Oh, Rachel. Oh my goodness. Your story is just absolutely fascinating. I cannot <laughs> wait for our peers out there listening. Well, everyone's listening now to, yeah, to really tune into this. So look, over the last, I think it's about eight and a half years in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. Most recently, as I mentioned, you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Um, for the last five years, you've been a professional speaker. And you've spoken at a whole heap of events nationally and internationally. As you said, you've done that pitch five, 10,000 times. <laughs> you know, what are the three key pieces of, of advice that you would give to our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Mm. Um, wh- one of them, I think we touched on just recently, which is so true and so important, especially for women is the imposter syndrome part, right? Like just do it, just do it, just get out there, just start, just pitch, just say it. Even if you have the crazy voice, the crazy non-confident, unconfident voice in your head saying, this isn't you, you're an imposter. You shouldn't be here. You got to just burst through it, right? Do the pitches, do the things. Um, and over time that imposter syndrome will go away. Um, so that was, that would been would have been some great advice for me. Um, another piece is that the roller coaster always goes back up. Like the amount of times I was like, oh God, like this is it. We're running out of money. No one will invest in, like, no one gets it, because I'm probably not pitching it right. Um, the roller coaster goes back up. There is gonna be so many times in the beginning where it feels like it's all over. And it's just a roller coaster, right? It's, it's gonna go back up again. Um, and so the resilience piece of of recognizing being able to see over the next hump of the roller coaster is is super important. Um and then laser focused distractions, right? That especially over the past year, as I've, as our business has changed from being a really, really early stage company to a scaling, growing business, my role had to change. And I, I wasn't quite prepared for that, right? I, I'm not doing the things anymore. I'm managing the things. There's actually a great Y Combinator article, um, out there that explains, um, you start as the doer in chief. 
then you become the company builder in chief. And I wasn't quite ready for that. I had built this great team of, of executives that were just executing and just doing things. And I sat back and I was like, well, wait, well, what, what am I supposed to do now? And it was almost a weird, like the, we were growing into a different kind of a business. My job had to change. The things I focused on and, and did with my time had to change. So um, being prepared for that would have, would have been nice. Uh, so yeah, I think do the things, get out there, do it fast, just burst through the imposter syndrome. Um, recognize the roller coaster is going to go back up, have extreme resilience, um, and recognize that your role is going to change over time. Um, and you're going to have to be a different type of manager at each stage of your company. I love it. Oh my goodness. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Rachel, for all of the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us and particularly us women that we can do it. You know, if we Mm -hmm. stay laser focused, if we just, you know, go after what we want, we can actually make it happen for ourselves. And for that, we really appreciate you. Of course. Amazing. So our final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Hmm. Growth, I think. Growth is the most valuable thing. Um, When you are pursuing what you're passionate about, you're going to work twice as hard at it. Um, it's going to challenge you. It's going to change you. It's going to turn its back on you. Sometimes you're going to have to be resilient and push through it. Um, and I have grown so much faster in my years pursuing this business and what I'm passionate about than I ever would have at a regular job or in my four years of university. Um, you become a different person. You grow at a much more rapid pace, um, when you're pursuing something that you're passionate about. Um, it's, it's hugely important. And some of us can find that at a normal job if you're really passionate about it. Um, but for those of us that are entrepreneurs, you've got to go after what, what you want to do in the kind of business you want to build. You will grow at an insane rate and be extremely surprised at the person you become over time. Ah, I love it. Oh my goodness, Rachel, we have had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and Intrinio? Uh, so you can go to our website, www.intrinio.com. Um, and you can actually chat us live and get connected to me that way as well. Or you can check out our Twitter at Intrinio. Perfect. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Rachel. It's been so good. It was great to be here. Amazing. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers